Schubert's Wanderer fantasy must be one of the earliest examples of a new way of musical thinking, one that later romantics and even modern composers were to find fascinating. In its form, it draws together fragments from all four traditional movements of a classical sonata or symphony and joins them to make them work as four parts of one movement, as elements of a single unfolding arch of music. There's the beginning section, which sounds as though it might be the opening of a sonata allegro, a slow movement with traces in it of a theme and variations, a minuet, or rather scherzo, and a finale, which suggests bits of both a rondo and a fugue. But the extraordinary thing is that although there are many dramatic pauses and changes of speed and colour in the piece, the whole fantasy actually hangs together like a single movement, like the torrential unfolding of a single stream of invention. This bringing together of several forms into one is an idea Liszt later made famous in his piano sonata in B minor. But there's another way in which Schubert's fantasy prefigures a later way of writing music. In its almost obsessive concentration on a single brief musical image, three notes, often the same note, in the rhythm long, short, short. Or the other way round, short, short, long. This simple idea and its many, many extensions, developments and ramifications saturates the texture of every page of the Wanderer fantasy. And the point is not that this is something clever and abstruse, but that it's so outrageously obvious. There are so many possibilities locked up in this idea that Schubert can build the whole piece out of it. It can be short, short, long, or long, short, short, as we just heard. He can add to either end of it, extending it and elaborating on it. It has strength and ambiguity built into it. And it feels like something which has existed since the beginning of music. It's almost like part of time. This rhythm is so clear and so physically affective that when you hear it, you almost have to move to it. of this idea is such that you can hear it going on at different speeds at the same time. In those very opening bars, for example, you can hear the rhythm nesting into itself like a set of Russian dolls. You've got dum, popa, dum, popa, dum. And behind that, twice as slow, bom, 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 bom. And twice as slow as that even, bom, bom, bom. This isn't the sort of hidden concentration on a single idea whereby a composer like Brahms, for instance, could derive pages and pages of music from one thought, but so cleverly that you hardly notice what he's doing. It's quite the opposite, 
an upfront and almost violent assault on your ears by an image, a motif that simply won't let go. Consider where it takes us in the first movement of the piece. In the very opening bars, the left and right hands have been playing together. The effect is pretty obviously that of a quick march, perhaps warlike, perhaps triumphant, certainly defiant. But almost immediately, Schubert splits the hands so that they're each playing a different version of that march. What you hear there most immediately, of course, is the right hand. So here's the rhythm in the left hand on its own. It fits into the gaps of the right hand, so that although each hand individually isn't quite a straight statement of that rhythm, together they make up that relentless dum pum pa dum pa pum We're not even ten bars into the piece, yet already Schubert is beginning to play with the rhythm and see what he can do with it, how he can build a whole piece with it. One of the key ways Schubert is able to keep such a simple idea going for long stretches of music is by extending it. In that example, for instance, he makes the rhythm slightly more complicated by adding extra beats to the beginning and the end of the simple pattern of three. It's like a children's clapping game, where every time your turn comes round, you have to add an extra clap at the beginning or at the end. That idea is even more obvious a moment later, where Schubert returns to the simple march idea of the beginning, but quietly this time. All he's adding is a high echo chord on the end of each phrase. But this ending soon sprouts into its own life as a new version of short, short, long. And then this sprouts again with new added beats before and after. After a cascade of much quicker notes, the next paragraph of music begins with what seems like a quite new idea, in a faraway key and as different as possible. except that it's not different, of course, because there's that rhythm again, with a little reversal of itself at the end. Long, short, short, long, short, 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 long. So all of that memorable long line of melody is, rhythmically speaking, just another extension, albeit a magically fresh-sounding one, of the opening marching rhythm. And if you listen to what the bass is doing there, Underneath that tune, the same rhythm's there too, 
going a bit more slowly. And even the strange tenor voice that keeps interrupting in the left hand plays with that rhythm by extending it. After revisiting the march from the beginning, Schubert soon drives the music towards the appearance of another new melody, even more surprising than the last. Except that once again it's not such a surprise, because there's that rhythm again. Short, short, long. Short, short, long. Schubert extends it, adds an accompaniment, and conjures up another new musical character from the same old idea. This one sounds like dance music or even ballet music. Later on, as the piano writing becomes fiercer and more complicated, Schubert begins extending the image even further. The rhythm, short, short, long, is given a skip in it. Short, short, long, short, short, long. Let's listen to the whole of this passage, to Schubert making the rhythm step by step more complicated, adding extra beats and dotted rhythms, and building up a kind of contrapuntal texture. Then suddenly, as though he'd finished with that train of thought, dissolving all the complexity and stripping everything back to the simple three-beat rhythm of the opening of the piece. It's like looking at a musical idea through a microscope and gradually bringing the focus in onto ever smaller and smaller details of an image. With this moment of intense concentration of the musical idea, the first section of the fantasy comes to an end. As I said at the beginning of this program, Schubert's obsessive interest in one easily memorable rhythmic idea, 
a sort of marching beat, seems to permeate every page and every image in this music. There's almost nothing that doesn't sound as though it comes from this single source. Well, that's almost true, but not quite. There are other ways of listening to this fantasy, and one is in terms of those few passages which don't come out of the relentless marching rhythm, those moments, sometimes tiny, sometimes striking and dramatic, which are like glimpses of another world, a lighter, more chaotic world, one not bound to the heavy tramping of feet. There's a first suggestion of that other world right in the very opening gesture of the piece. This leaping arpeggio seems to rush into the empty space that the march rhythm leaves for a moment. It makes that rhythm, when it comes back a split second later, sound even stronger. This is the real point about nearly every moment in this piece, where Schubert gives us a glimpse of something else that's not the obsessive rhythm. It's usually a semiquaver passage, something flowing, the opposite of that primitive percussive beat, and it's nearly always there to make the rhythm, when it does come back, feel more powerful, make more impact than before. Like this moment, a few bars further on, where Schubert dissolves the piano writing into a trembling sound like the wind over a rushing chromatic scale in the bass. It's there to dramatise another spectacular appearance of the fundamental rhythmic theme. One of the most striking examples of this way of doing things comes at the moment when Schubert leads us out of the opening paragraph and into the first long tune. Here, cascades of semiquavers quickly die down to make way for the tune which we haven't heard before. But he does something else too, something more mysterious. He writes the semiquavers in such a way that for a moment we can hear the beginning, the suggestion of another quite different tune one that almost appears. And then that mysterious hint of a tune swiftly changes shape to lead into the tune that Schubert really wants us to listen to. It's a bewitchingly deceptive and unsettling moment. The composer makes you feel almost as though you weren't listening closely enough and you must have missed something. Later on in this first section of the Wanderer Fantasy, there's a fine and stormy passage where Schubert weaves his two worlds, his march rhythm and its opposite, in and out of one another. 
And a few bars later on, when he wants to introduce the dance tune that's so obviously based on the march rhythm, he again steps outside into his other world, just for a few moments. I said those rapid semiquavers in the opening phrase of the piece were there to emphasise the march rhythm. Now Schubert's doing the same thing, but on a different scale. He's using a whole passage of semiquavers to prepare us for another whole passage based on the march. If he hadn't done this, the tune itself wouldn't sound the way it does. There are so many different ways Schubert can use the semiquaver's ability to emphasise the three-note rhythm. For example, here's a moment from slightly later, where he interrupts some of the grandest and most powerful statements of his rhythm with brief splashes of chaos and light, which set the rhythm into the sharpest relief. the simple rhythm that Schubert uses all the way through the Wanderer fantasy, a march rhythm. But what it really is, of course, is the rhythm of any kind of movement with your two feet. Depending on the speed, it's the rhythm of walking or running, of a triumphant quick march, or of the trudge of a funeral procession. Anything from the slowest and most tired stumble to the fastest and most energetic helter-skelter. And this is where the famous title comes in. Schubert himself never called this fantasy the Wanderer. The name was attached many years after his death when people noticed that the next section of the piece, its slow movement, quotes from one of Schubert's own songs, The Wanderer. It's worth looking in a little more detail at exactly the part of the song that music comes from. It's the second verse. The sun seems so cold here, the flowers faded, life seems old, and the way people speak is an empty noise. I am a stranger everywhere I go.
As you can hear, the tune of the slow movement of the fantasy is a direct quotation, except that the fantasy version has a darker, heavier colour, because this time Schubert fills in more of the notes in each chord. But that doesn't end the connections between the song and the fantasy. There are several others. For example, if you take the very opening of the song and stress the rhythm of the left hand, you find a slow version of that rhythm which comes up again and again in the fantasy. Long, short, short. Maybe this is where the idea behind the whole piano piece comes from. It's a wonderful example of a great composer taking a tiny idea and transforming it. And it's an example of Schubert's peculiar connection with his own music, the way he makes new ideas out of old ones. And when he takes and transforms an idea from one of his songs, like he does here, and in the Trout Quintet, and in the Death and the Maiden String Quartet, we can interpret the new work in the light of the poetry of the song. There in the song, the poetic intentions of that rhythm are clear. They suggest the slow and heavy tread of the hero's feet as he wanders in a strange and gloomy land far from his home in the mountains. And if in the first movement of the fantasy we could hear a march and a dance, here at the beginning of the slow section, the suggestion that comes and goes is that of a slow funeral march. The thick spacing of the chords in the fantasy version of this idea suggests the typically funereal orchestration of low brass. While the words of the song, all about the sun going cold, life being old, flowers fading and so on, suggest the gloom of an afterlife, perhaps even the image of Orpheus wandering in Hades. But Schubert doesn't stay long with the picture painting of the song, and he soon takes us back to another purer music, and back to his obsessive play with that three-note rhythm. 
Over a rumbling drum roll, he transforms the funeral march or funeral song into what sounds like something with the force of the first movement. And yet again, just like in the first movement, the semiquavers of the other world, in the bass this time, prepare us for the return of that rhythm. ended his first movement with that breathing in after all the complexity. He distilled his rhythmic idea into its very smallest parts and repeated them again and again. Something of the same sort happens in this slow movement, but quite the other way round. Here, Schubert dissolves the song music by varying the accompaniment more and more until we hardly even recognise the tune. Eventually, the texture becomes pure accompaniment. It's a fascinating moment, the moment when the tune quite disappears. And for a short while, the composer really does take us into that other world, a world of flickering brightness and intensity and almost sinister freedom. And eventually, only echoes of the tune remain, stretched out, poised on the edge of disappearance.
The opening of the third movement breaks the suspense by whirling us back to the certainties of the first bars of the first movement. But as so often in this piece, it does so in a rather strange key, so it sounds familiar and far away at the same time. The original rhythmic idea has been transformed into an entirely new dance that sweeps us into the public world of the Viennese ballroom. It's a preposterously fast waltz, but perhaps it only feels like that because the poor old wanderer has been wandering around for a bit too long in the gloomier parts of North Germany, and these bright lights and Viennese hijinks are all too much for him. <laughs> is an extended version of short, short, long, four short beats and a long one. And there's a dotted rhythm that we've heard before. When they're put together, they make another short, short, long at half speed. Short, short, long. It's different, but still recognisably close to the opening of the first movement. Take the figure at the end of that first phrase. And the figure which ended the first phrase of the first movement. Or take a passage from the first page of the whole fantasy. And compare that to these saucy chromatic flurries from straight out of a dancing class which appear in this third movement. And the saucy flurries themselves are made of two rhythmic elements, this and this both rhythms that by this stage in the piece we've heard a great many times. At this point, you might throw down your cup of tea in frustration and say, but is that really what we want to hear when there are so many different beautiful melodies in this piece? Maybe some people don't find this kind of thing interesting, but to me the fact that Schubert was able to build this whole huge work out of such a tiny amount of rhythmic source material is fascinating and it makes the scale and feel of this piece very different from, say, the ranginess of his late sonatas. I think it's what gives this music its haunted, hunted quality and its physical strength. And it's also, for me, precisely what makes the abundance of different melodies so interesting. The fact that they're all, either openly or in some kind of loosely hidden way, based on the same rhythm, even if the outlines of the notes are very different. There's a framework of intention behind this piece, which at first glance might seem a chaotic mixture of different sections. In the first two movements, there were several significant episodes and turns in the story when, for a brief moment, Schubert offers us a glimpse of something else, the other world. There's less of that sort of thing in this scherzo, but on the whole, the rhythmic concentration of this movement seems, if anything, even greater than that of either of the previous two. 
and perhaps this has something to do with the way Schubert is tensing his muscles here, gathering his strength for the last movement. But there is a remarkable passage towards the end of the scherzo where the right hand seems to be struggling to take off into that other world, while the left hand keeps pulling it down again, anchoring it in some kind of relentless reiteration. Of course, that hint of the other world is preparing us for something. For a moment or two later begins one of the most famous passages in the whole piece, a thunderous return to the C major of the very opening, and to the opening idea itself, but this time hammered out as a fugue subject in octaves. It's not a real fugue, of course, just the opening of one, a chivalrous gesture to the 18th century past in the time-honoured tradition of many another piece from the late classical period. But as well as conveying a certain old-fashioned gravitas, this fugal opening does two other things. It returns us to the dramatic and forward-moving energy of the march music from the first movement, and it sums up all the rhythmic adventures we've heard so far. The different guises of that ever-present, short, short, long figure are all concentrated into a single mighty line. echoes and paraphrases creep in too. The dramatic music we heard a moment ago from the end of the scherzo is expanded from three time into four. The right hand is still struggling to break free. a reappearance of the rushing mighty wind that we heard in the first and third movements. So many ideas reappear and now seem stronger than before. 
And here at last in the final movement, after the distinctive tautness and tightness of the previous one, a new quality of freedom and convulsion seems to enter into Schubert's language. There are more and more moments when the obsessive wanderer rhythm of the opening no longer controls every aspect of the music. The trembling semiquavers of the other world begin to break free. And even those awe-inspiring dotted rhythm chords that follow seem as though the pianist were trying to break the chains that are holding him back. The passage that immediately follows that amazing gesture takes this idea even further. At the end of the piece, in the very closing bars, Schubert's awe-inspiring concentration on the sheer physical energy generated by one simple musical motif is in retreat. We've escaped from that idea, and we're into something new, and the fact that we can still hear the odd echo of the old rhythm no longer matters, for it no longer presses on our attention. It's as though those glimpses of another world beyond that rhythmic idea that we've heard throughout the piece have now become more than glimpses. We're actually in the other world. We've arrived. Instead of preparing us for the rhythm, instead of emphasising and strengthening it, those passages were actually trying to overcome it, and at last they have. Rhythm and the strength of rhythm are not ideas usually associated with Schubert. People tend to think first and foremost of his greatness as a melodist, or else of the strange power of his harmonies. But here, in the wanderer fantasy, rhythm is everything. The effect of these final bars is overwhelming, the more so because of Schubert's steely discipline and intensity. For almost the whole piece, he has held the rhythmic language of his musical drama in a vice-like grip, reinforcing his chosen rhythmic image and exploring all its possibilities. So that the moment when he finally lets go of that rhythm is one of intense release and freedom. <laughs> 